So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Next up on our Meet the Board series, we have Dana Arikat. She is our Director of Communications and a MIT a Masters of City Planning Class of 2009 graduate. Dana currently resides between Palestine and Jordan uh, and consults with international organizations and nonprofits on sustainable development. So without further ado, Dana Arikat. Dana is a Palestinian American architect and planner. She holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Architecture from the University of California at Berkeley and a Master's in City Planning from MIT, class of 2009. She has a passion for photography, arts, and baking sweets. And I'm so excited to welcome Dana to this episode. Hi, Dana. Hi, Dana. How are you? Doing well. Uh, Great to have you join us today. So as we are getting to know all the members of the board, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what got you excited about joining and what you're doing with us right now? Uh, Sure. Well, I've had a relationship with the board. I was really excited about the work that the board is doing in terms of working and targeting Arab students uh, to come to MIT and expanding the networks towards a younger Arab generation for the opportunity to study at MIT. Uh, MIT is definitely one of the highlights of my career slash education and one of the most memorable. And the experience and education that I gained there uh, is a privilege. And I wish for anybody who would be you know, interested in pursuing MIT that they would have access to the resources and find a way to be able to get to MIT and study there. Uh, it's definitely a, my, a life-changing experience. And with the board, like you said, I'm the director of communications. So I'm in charge of the communications with the MIT AAA community and beyond through, you know, posting about our events, through emails of relevant information, and in terms of a supportive support role as well to reach out to the wider Arab community. So I joined the board this year, and I'm really excited to see what we can do for the next two years. We're excited to have you on the board. And Uh, something that is really unique to MIT and also a factor that has been translated into our board is that we have people from so many different backgrounds with so many different interests. Uh, And so to kind of shed light on that, what was your background like and how did you end up at MIT? Well, you know, my bio says I'm a Palestinian American, but I was actually born Palestinian period. I'm, and I'm only talking about citizenship here, not, not in terms of growing up. And my parents had actually moved to Kuwait in 1967. Neither of my parents are college educated. So I am first generation. My siblings are first generation uh, university educated. 
but education has always been extremely, extremely important to my, my parents. Um, it is something that they embedded in us at a very young age. And it's part of, you know, the Palestinian identity is that the more education you get, the better you will get in the world and the more you would assert an identity that is um, under constant threat. So while I was born in Kuwait, uh, when the Gulf War happened, I was uh, around 11 years old, the first Gulf War. And we ended up being in Palestine that year. Uh, We were there on holiday and the Gulf War happened and we could not return to Kuwait. So we had to live there for one year. And then my parents decided uh, to move to the U.S. uh, in order to get the the American citizenship. We had the green card at the time, which had been passed down to us from my grandfather. And the only way for us to return to Kuwait was to be Americans at the time. So we went to the U.S. where I studied for three years. Mind you, I arrived in the U.S. with very little English. Um, I remember clearly somebody asking me, how come you came to the States? And my response was, what do you mean how? By plane. Because I could not, I did not understand the different, you know, uh, sort of colloquial language. So the first year I was actually in an ESL class, the English as a second language class. And uh, shortly after that, within, uh, within the year, I managed to be in regular English classes. And after three years of being in the U.S., where my Arabic got mixed up and my English was good, but I mean, still not perfect, my parents had gotten the citizenship and decided to move back to Kuwait. So again, we were moved from the U.S. back to Kuwait. And this time it was a whole different experience because uh, they put us, me and my younger brother, in American schools. And the reason for that was we could not go back to an Arabic education because of the three-year gap we had, which was instrumental uh, to maintain the Arabic education at the time. So I think this really played a part in, in who I became by moving from Kuwait to Palestine to the U.S., back to Kuwait to a whole different environment. I think this is where my passion for uh, development in the world really started. But I was not aware of that then. That, that would happen later. You got to see the different ways people experience life in this world and how citizenship can play a, a big role in that. And, and, and I'm sure that, you know, can drive anyone into realizing that there's big differences in how you're treated and in how you interact with the world and, and how the world interacts with you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as looking back at it, as difficult as it was as a child, I don't think I would have gotten the exposure and the adaptability that I had to learn if it wasn't for that experience. And that really played a part in me becoming adaptable and in, in to circumstances to where I live. And, you know, following, I actually have a little twisted story for how I got to MIT, because following my graduation from high school in Kuwait, I mean, I graduated with a decent GPA. It was like a 3.5. But that would not have gotten me into MIT or Berkeley. We both know that. <laughs> so, but I honestly, I was just, for me, high school, I was a good student. I was just, I was not an overachiever. So what happened is I, I my parents sent me off to San Francisco because uh, my older brother was there to go to university in San Francisco and to be close to family. 
And for the first year, I enrolled at San Francisco State University, genuinely having no idea what I wanted to do. And I took a number of different classes, the general education classes, and did not find my interest. I uh, did not find anything I was really interested in. I, and um, after a year there, I was looking through, uh, I, you know, I've always, I, I've always had a passion for arts. And uh, I grew up around plans for my dad working and being in construction. So I decided, I, you know, I wanted to give architecture a try. And what I ended up doing was I looked up community colleges in the area and found that uh, City College of San Francisco actually has a program, a transfer program with Berkeley. It's not guaranteed admission, but if you do well, your chances are pretty high. And I threw myself into that. I enrolled. I, you know, the first year I did at SF State, I don't think I got more than 20 credits out of it. Um, but honestly, I was willing to give up that one year. And for me, it wasn't that I, you know, it was a waste. On the contrary, you know, I made good friends. I learned new things. But I was set that I wanted to pursue architecture. And for two years, I attended City College of San Francisco. It was absolutely dedicated. And I fell in love with architecture. And after the two years, I applied to UC Berkeley. And, uh, and I got accepted. And I went on to graduate from there in 2001 in architecture. So that's how I got to Berkeley. So what was Berkeley like? Honestly, I did not get the experience that most undergraduate students get because I was an architecture student. And that meant you spent weekends and nights at the studio. <laughs> studio life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people who study architecture know this. I mean, I had a pillow in the studio or life in the <laughs> studio. Um, it was, you had to be, if you wanted to do well, you had to be committed. Right. And and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just me. It was, you know, everybody would go. We were known that our building was the only one that it was lit up at four o'clock in the morning. Us um, and the engineering students, I think, but I've never gone to the engineering building. Mm -hmm. And it was an incredible experience in terms of learning. I made, you know, great friends learning about architecture and design. And it's uh, one of the best schools and gave me a really solid background. But when I graduated, I actually took the summer in Berkeley it was uh, summer of 2011 and I decided to take a course over the summer to go travel around Europe as part mm. of the architecture uh, an architecture class so officially I graduated end of August early September I think or August 31st I think 2011 and I said you know I want to take a little bit of a break and then I will start looking for work and 9-11 happened and we all know how that went <laughs> So it was um, it was really a struggle trying to find a job opportunity, even though I had a degree from Berkeley, I had graduated in high honors, I had a great portfolio, mm -hmm. and the landscape was extremely competitive, and not to mention I am Arab. I never saw that I was uh, discriminated against in the job market, but I wouldn't put it past that whole time period because we all know how things happen things went down from there. So um, I kept looking for opportunities and I managed to get an opportunity with a very small firm that was actually run by a Palestinian guy. And I started working with him in San Francisco. I lived there for about six to seven years. And then I decided to move back to Kuwait to be with closer to my family, to be with my family. Uh, went back there, continued working in architecture. Now, just to let you know, I mean, 
for me, city planning was really on my radar from Berkeley. So when I was at Berkeley, I took a class with a professor named Ananya Roy, who is one of the most influential persons in my life. Uh, she currently teaches at UCLA. And it was uh, planning in developing countries. And that was a whole eye-opening uh, class for me. I was able to intellectualize things that I've seen and things that I've lived and the reality of, of the Arab world in that classroom. Uh, so being Palestinian, having lived there, having continuously visited, seeing how the occupation, how planning is used as a weapon in Palestine, seeing what it means to plan for equity, for equitable development. I was able to really connect the dots in that classroom. And yeah. I really owe it to her for the way that my perception of the world moved just from simply designing buildings and what it actually means to, to really design a more holistic environment or a community, whether it's a community, whether it's um, a city, whether it's a country, they're all interlinked. And I, I made a decision that I knew that if I wanted to pursue graduate studies, that most graduate programs require some experience, work experience. And I also wanted to work um, and get the professional experience. And after two years in Kuwait, I uh, decided to apply to MIT. And uh, so you joined the Masters of City Planning program. And what was uh, some of the work that you focused on? Well, before I say that I joined the Masters in City Planning program, I do have to tell you this. And, and I think this is something that probably, you know, younger people need to be aware of. When, when I first took the graduate record examinations, the GREs, I did horribly. I mean, horribly. And I know they say, you know, the GREs don't matter, but no, they do with the overall package. And although my, my GPA from Berkeley was with high honors, I had six, seven years of work experience. Uh, I had, you know, great letters of recommendations. That GRE score was not going to get me into MIT. So what I did was I actually enrolled in a class for the GREs for a month where I did nothing else but study for the GREs. So I just wanted to put that out there. And, you know, and after I took the exam the second time, I scored in the top over the 90th percentile. Um, but I, I really had to dedicate myself to do that. You didn't think of yourself as an overachiever when you were describing your high school experience, but did that shift happen because you moved to the States or was it just when you were trying to figure out how academ uh, academia fit into your life plan and, and that value of education that your parents instilled in you? You know, I think you? it's both the value of education that my parents instilled in me, but I think most importantly, I found something I was really passionate about. Um, I think right. in high school, you know, I was... I was doing well. I just, I wasn't over, like, I wasn't too driven. I wasn't a straight student. Right. But you don't learn architecture in high school. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, yeah. I didn't know. I took art classes in, in high school where I excelled in them, but, and, and I excelled in math classes, but there are areas that I didn't. And I, I don't know how the education system has shifted nowadays, but in my time, it was, you know, even though it was an American school, but there are certain classes you must take. It's not like you have a huge range of, of fields to choose from. And um, yeah. I wasn't passionate about all of them. Um, the ones I was passionate about, I did well. So I really think it was finding, 
finding what I wanted to do and knowing that if I wanted to make an impact, I have to work hard. I can't just sort of like go with the flow kind of thing. But you can work hard on the things that you're passionate about. You know, and not, not really giving up or being, I mean, I really, I never thought when I was in high school that I would make it to MIT. I never even thought I would Mm. make it to Berkeley, you know, like it wasn't even something that was on my radar. It wasn't, um, Mm-hmm. It's just when I when I found something I was passionate about, when I found a field that I wanted to be in, I wanted to get the best possible experience with that. And that's what drove me. Right. And MIT's program, the Urban Studies and, and Planning Program, why I was really, really attracted to it and, and wanted to pursue it is because the Masters in City Planning has actually four four core groups, which is they have the environment environment and I think it was environmental design group they have the city Mm -hmm. design group they have the housing uh, and neighborhood I believe it was called group I may be wrong with the with the name but it was housing and community development group and they have the international development group and the international development group which was I was a part of actually has very little Mm -hmm. to do with with city design or city planning in the traditional sense (laughs) it's more about designing strategies uh it's more about uh, project right. development it's more about what you know what works in a certain country uh, versus another uh how does international aid in the community in international community what responsibilities do they have towards uh places that are you know quote-unquote developing countries or emerging uh, markets or developing markets and so it, it was. A, it's a shift. It's definitely a shift from architecture, um, but it's very yeah. much related because again, you are designing something. You're envisioning a bigger picture, and trying to implement that to really contribute to a better world. And you, I wanted to get involved much more in the planning world uh, and in the planning field, and especially in issues around social justice and planning and 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 bettering. You know places that are either you know underprivileged or in development and also how it links back to to Palestine as well uh, a lot of my work actually at MIT focused on planning in relation to Palestine whether it was through the classes the the papers that I've written in different classes or my master's thesis for me I linked it back to Palestine that was an area that I wanted to become you know an expert in so to speak and so I made sure that all the work that I did, that I'm able, that I had the tools to explain what is happening in Palestine on the ground and what is needed. So uh, let's dive into the work that you've done since you've graduated. You've been all over uh, the Palestinian map, but you've also been uh, in Jordan and uh, working with people who you know, are thinking about international development and sustainable development and actually acting on it. And so what can you tell us about the experiences you've had since graduation? I have to say, when I when I graduated from MIT, I had my mindset that I want to work for the World Bank. And, and the reason is we had studied a lot about the World Bank at MIT and about the projects and about lessons learned about what makes a successful project, what does not. And I really wanted, and you always see, you know, the World Bank from the outside, but I really wanted to get the experience of being within it. So what I did was I could not find much to apply for to the World Bank at my level. I had just, I was a recent recent graduate and I had applied for uh, an internship 
one of the many places I had applied to after I graduated in DC, for DC was an internship with the International Economic Development Council, which is a think tank in DC. And I took that on. I was offered, a, it's a paid internship, so it's not uh, an unpaid internship. So I took that on for about three months. And while I was there, I began networking to get to the World Bank. And I can't overstress the importance of networking in anybody's career moves. It really opens a lot of doors and a lot of possibilities. So I began networking uh, through, I would, you know, people that I knew, I would ask if they knew people at the World Bank. They introduced me to people. A couple of them didn't have any consultancies or assignments, but each one introduced me to another person and I landed a consultancy at the World Bank. Uh, the first consultancy was with uh, uh, the Europe and Central Asia uh, department, and it was working on, you know, sustainable development in Tbilisi, Georgia, and looking at their strategic development for the city, uh, looking at, you know, lessons learned from surrounding, you know, surrounding areas. It was a really great experience in terms of learning. It was not a very pleasant experience on a personal level at the World Bank. And I'm not, you know, I'm someone who would like not, I, I never really addressed this publicly or, or um, said anything about it, but I think it's very important for young women to hear it, that, you know, when you are faced with sexual harassment in the workplace, you can't put your foot down and, uh, and say no. And that's what happened while I was with this particular department. And while I could not oh, wow. say anything, um, because that would jeopardize my opportunities or I felt like it would jeopardize my opportunities, I stepped away. And luckily, and things happen, I, I really believe in, 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 in faith and, and doors opening. While I was stepping away, yeah. a wonderful, wonderful team leader, leader had heard about me through another colleague and approached me to work on another project with him at the World Bank. And again, the power of network. Exactly. So I was at a very mm -hmm. uh, weak spot, so to speak, and a very upsetting spot because here I am this is what I wanted to do this is what I wanted to learn and a few months in I'm faced with the boss who had ulterior motives and I had to and I thought you know that's it I'm gonna need to give up on on working the World Bank but yani, alhamdulillah that someone had heard of my name through another colleague and approached me and I started working his name is uh, Julian Lempietti a wonderful team leader and I started working with him on a project from A to Z on food security in the MENA region. And this project, because it was new, it was in the inception phase, I traveled to Tunis, to Egypt, to Lebanon, to Saudi Arabia, to Oman, to Bahrain, to I think a couple of other countries I can't remember, working on this project and spending in Yemen. This is before the war in Yemen. So I went to places I never thought I would go on my own. As part of this project and uh, I stayed with him for over a year uh, where almost two years until the we finalized the report and the, we finalized all the recommendations so all the way from the beginning to the closing of the project and it was uh, absolutely a wonderful wonderful experience and um, after that I decided to move to Palestine and that's you know I moved basically finished the project with uh, with the World Bank and I moved to Palestine. How did you end up back in Palestine? And how did that feel to, to be going back there? Did you feel 
like a different person uh, at the point when uh, you were coming back? When I moved back to Palestine, I had actually uh, submitted a proposal for uh, a consultancy with the Palestinian uh, private sector development company. And it was looking at assessing um, an area for a large development. And they actually, you know, submitted the proposal and I won the consultancy bid. So this is why I moved back. Uh, It wasn't a huge project. It was just they were looking for a consultant to do an assessment of the site, of the environment, um, the economic analysis. I moved back for this. I have to say, it wasn't easy. I, I grew up going to Palestine pretty much every year, but it was always for visits. I had never lived there except for that one year in seventh grade. So it was very different. I went from a place, you know, like D.C. and having lived in Boston and having lived in San Francisco that is extremely um, expensive almost and and large and, and open to a place that is physically confined. Where were you? I was you in Ramallah. But Palestine is physically, Ramallah is physically confined. All the Palestinian cities are yeah. physically confined. You have a wall that had been built around right. them that has literally like just sort of choked the life out of each city. And even though there is life within the city, you feel that claustrophobia. You feel that pain when you're driving by the wall. You feel like something unnatural, very unnatural on the ground. And unfortunately, and I think this is part of, you know, normal like people's sort of dealing and coping it has become normalized uh there and that sometimes like a lot of people just don't don't see it anymore because it's become part of day-to-day life but the minute you know you, you take a step back and you look and you're like what is you know this is wrong on so many levels so it was extremely difficult in that sense um it was also you know moving to a new place where i knew very few people I knew some family members, but that's it. And I would say, you know, the first year, I, I would tell everybody who asked me, I'm only here for a year and I'm leaving. Anyone who would ask, like, I'm only here for a year, I'm leaving, I'm not staying. Sure enough, I was there for seven years. And that's how it goes. But, you know, it, 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 it grew on me and I really, you know, fell in love with being there. And another thing was after this, while I was doing this consultancy, I started looking because I knew the consultancy was going to come to an end. Again, I started looking for work. I applied to a number of things, passed around my CV to a lot of people that I knew. And one day I got a phone call and I had applied to, you know, a number of positions in planning, like with UN agencies and, and stuff. So and interviewed with them as well. So one day I received a phone call from someone who says, hi, is this, you know, Dan Arikat? And I said, yeah. He said, I would like to uh, have coffee with you. I received your CV through, and he named the person. And I said, oh, is this, is this for the UN, the, the UN job? Like I interviewed with you already. He said, no, what UN job? No, 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 this is something else. So I said, okay. So I, I went to the office and met with this person. And uh, we had an hour conversation and uh, about my work, my experience, about planning. And of course, I did my research before going to meet with him. He told me he was working at the Ministry of Planning in Palestine. And before I went to meet with him, of course, I went to their website, downloaded their strategy, read all about it, read all about the work they're doing, you know. I, I didn't even, it wasn't, he didn't even say it's an interview. He said, I just would like to have coffee with you. So there was no promise of a job, but I said, you know what? Very obscure, but I said, you know what? I'm going to be as prepared as it comes. 
And sure enough, at the end of the one hour meeting, he said to me that he is actually looking to um, to leave his position. And it's a very highly sensitive position. So he is looking for a replacement and that he is going to recommend my name to the minister. And it turned out that position wow. was advisor to the minister of planning and the head of the aid management department. Oh, my God. And um, the reason why is, you know, it's a sensitive position is because you are dealing with the international community. You're basically managing a billion-dollar portfolio and projects. You don't deal with finances directly, so no money comes through you. But you are responsible for allocating the funds that come into Palestine with your team. There's a team of 10 people. So there is a lot of room in that position for uh, mishandling and nepotism and a number, you know, a number of, of, of ways that it could be go wrong. And which is why they wanted to make sure is someone who is independent, like independent politically, not really, you know, from the Palestinian community <laughs> and who has a handle on things. And so uh, I started that job. Wow. So completely, eventually it really was a merit-based interview and none of the nepotism, and, and they really uh, were able to screen you, maybe because of how obscure absolutely, they were. Absolutely, and I was like, you know, and I, went, like, I went to having no idea what this guy wants, but it was, it's, it was amazing. And the whole experience working in that position, that was another, I would say, another mm-hmm. highlight of my career. So being the highlight of your career, what were some highlights of that position? You know, you learn you, in, you know, in graduate school or even after working with the World Bank, you see from the outside sort of what is talked about and what is being done on the ground in, in developing countries, uh, especially with international aid. And you read about it a lot. There's a lot of material, academic material about it. But being in it and being so engrossed in it one, it was extremely challenging and which taught me a great deal about how to deal with professionally, how to deal with people around you when you have the international community wanting to set a certain agenda while you have the local community needing a need that may be different while you have somebody, you know, you have, I mean, I can't begin to tell you how many phone calls I would receive a week about somebody wanting me to do a favor in terms of a project. And my response was always, oh my God. There's, there's an application process, you can apply, and there's a, you know, a committee that will look at your proposal. <laughs> and, you know, and I honestly, like, people were shocked because I think, and I think this came, I have to say this, this came from the, the American mentality in, you know, in, in the Arab world in general. You know, you like, you sort of, even if you want to say no, you never really say no, right? You say, inshallah. Uh, right. say, oh, I'll see what I can do. I promise, you know, and I'll, I'll let you know. And then you just sort of forget about it or you come back and you say, oh, I couldn't do anything, but I tried. I hadn't learned that skill. Yeah. Professionally. Professionally. I had not learned that skill. So my answer was always like very mm-hmm. direct and honest. It didn't sit well with a lot of people. Also, another thing that was, you know, is that I've always been on sort of the 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 left politically, right? So knowing that in Palestine, what is, you know, with the Oslo agreement and what happened has been, has done nothing but negative. It has, has no, no positive impact pretty much. But you always from the outside sort of look at the Palestinian authority and, and be very critical of them. And I am critical and I still am. But 
I was also able to see the position that, that a country could be put in as a result of the international community and as a result of an occupation and what little power they have, but also where there are missed opportunities for them to assert themselves. So it really sort of gave me an insight that I, I never... I would have never gotten into this whole field of planning and development. And also that, you know, I, I once was invited to give a talk in that in when, I, when I was doing that work as, you know, good aid or bad aid. Mm-hmm. Is aid bad or aid good? I'm like, you, you cannot, you know, we can't think in, in binaries, right? You can't say aid is good or yeah. aid is bad. There is aid that is bad. There is aid that is good. There is aid that you sort of cater it and, work around it to to achieve your goal mm-hmm. so more appropriate to what is actually exactly. needed so it really took me away from seeing things in black and white to really being able to see things on the gray scale and in a number of areas mm-hmm. so i, I want to ask you know you had your hands tied in multiple different ways and and you were being pulled in multiple different directions and you know, not to mention all the favors you were being asked to do and and turning down politely. But what is one achievement uh, that you're really proud of from your time in this position? I would have to say, actually, a report that I did. I did a report while I was in that position about the economic impact of the Oslo Agreement and the Paris Protocol. And I know some people listening may not be familiar with these things, but uh, the Paris Protocol is basically the economic agreement that took place after Oslo between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And it sets the framework for uh, imports, what, you know, tariffs are collected at imports. It sets the framework for how Palestinians are, how much they're allowed to import and not. It sets the, uh, the framework for uh, the taxes on, on gas and on, uh, on fuel, sorry, on fuel. And so it really illustrates the economic advantage, not just advantage, but pretty much robbing of Palestinians as a result of the Paris Protocol and how much Israel is actually benefiting from an agreement that was put in place back in the 90s that is, you know, had no caps on percentages, no caps on numbers, and, and it's still, still happening now. So that's, that's one thing that I'm really proud of doing. And I'm also extremely proud of... of you know, building in, in integrity and having integrity within that department and really putting Palestine at sort of at the... I'll give you an example. Maybe this will explain it better. While when the war on Gaza happened, I we had to do a committee for uh, fundraising for Gaza. This is for 2014. And one of the ambassadors of one of the countries that was working with us did not want me heading that committee because, not because of me personal, it was nothing to do with me as a person, because he felt that Palestinians don't have the capacity to do so. And he outright said that in a meeting. And he outright said to me, if you had the capacity, we won't be giving you funding. And honestly, I lost mine, and you can beat this if you want. (laughs) And I did not, you know... I can't explain to you what what happened in that meeting, but you know, raising my voice was basically like the the minimal that I did, and mm-hmm. I had to really you know lobby for myself. And here is somebody who is, you know, anywhere else in the world, is probably going to be looked at as someone who's actually you know very much fit. You know, I graduated from MIT. I 
have this much of years experience. Um, and yet because of the donor, the donor relation and the way that he, he perceived what he's doing, he completely disqualified me. But of course I didn't, yani, I didn't let him do that. I actually started lobbying with my minister and lobbying with another mm-hmm. country that we're working with on making sure that my department is actually heading this. And mm-hmm. I ended up also being the head of the technical committee for the reconstruction on Gaza, which looked at assessing uh, the damages that happened in Gaza at the time and ended up actually me myself going to Gaza, even though it's under complete blockade, I managed to get a special permit to go and spend 10 days there on the ground. And for me, really, that was a success. You know, just being able to assert, um, you know, like, national ownership in that sense uh, was extremely important yeah. for me. And agency and, and being able to uh, represent uh, what you care about and follow through and all the different things uh, that you needed to. I think that's great. So what have you been up to since then? Oh, wow. <laughs> so I left after three and a half, almost four years in that position Uh, I resigned, and and rightly so. I don't think anybody should stay in that position for more than that amount of time. So after that, I actually uh, became a a fellow at the Kenyan Institute in Jerusalem, uh, where I applied my practical knowledge to research. I was more academic research for about a year. And then I was, again, I was sort of headhunted for a consultancy uh, with the Welfare Association, Mu'assisted Ta'awun on uh, partnership development and uh, aid analysis, data data analysis, their aid analysis. And I ended up being hired there full time. And then from there, I was also uh, recruited by their uh, sort of uh, sub-organization, the Palestinian Museum, where I also consulted with them on fundraising and partnerships. And since then, I've been a freelance consultant. So after that, I uh, consulted with the Amman International Film Festival. And then currently, I'm consulting with the UNDP in Jordan. So over the last two two years, I've been uh, freelancing and consulting. So you've kind of taken a, a big shift from architecture. And, and the kind of work that you're working on, it's even a shift when you're talking about the positions you had with the World Bank and and, and the ministry into consulting, which one do you think fits more into your style? And what do you think about consulting in general? Look, consulting is a double-edged sword. I love it because no project is the same as the next. Uh, There's constant uh, challenges, constantly learning new things. I may know about, you know, partnership development and aid, but for example, with the Palestinian Museum, I had to learn about museums and art and, and the landscape of it and, you know, who are the main donors in that world and what I need to do to get to these donors. Uh, the same thing now with the UNDP. I mean, I've worked on communications and outreach and, and events, but I'm actually working on uh, an, an initiative called SDG Impact Jordan, which is actually working with the private sector to achieve uh, sustainability and to integrate the SDGs into their practices, the Sustainable Development Goals. 
So while I'm very familiar with oh, the sustainable wow. development goals, I'm not familiar with investments <laughs> and financial terminologies at all. But, um, mm-hmm. but I really am constantly learning. And I think this is what really drives me, is this continuous thirst mm-hmm. for learning new things. And this is where consultancy suits me, because with every new project, I have to learn something new. Also a flexible right. in terms of it's by deliverables. Uh, so I set mm-hmm. my time, my hours to deliver. Also that I can pretty much you know, work from anywhere when needed. So there's a lot of flexibility that comes with it. And a lot of excitement in terms mm-hmm. of learning new things and growing and, and getting new skills pretty much every single time. I think over the last two years, I've gained so many new skill sets. The, the not so good part of it is there's an uncertainty. I'm, I don't know when, if I'm going to get a consultancy for sure in the next couple of months or not, right? They're all like, they're usually short-term consultancies. I don't know if this consultancy will get the funding to be extended or not, because it's all, again, it depends on the funding. So this uncertainty can be, can be tough and can be scary. But in my mind, I keep looking for opportunities. I keep building my network. And pretty much since, like, like I said, since, since me being at the Ministry of Planning until now, every single job I've had has been through networks. So to reflect on the networks, the experiences you've had were there any people who stood out to you who were colleagues that you really learned from and that uh, you can attribute a lot of your growth to I think you learn from pretty much everybody you come in contact with in life right you dealing with people whether it's a colleague on a day-to-day basis who's a distant colleague or whether it's a boss you're constantly learning from people. You're learning new ways of approaching things, new ways of seeing things. I think there's one person that really stands out for me is the woman I worked with at the Kenyan Institute who was the director of the Kenyan Institute at the time, and her name is Mandy Turner. And she's, she's a wonderful academic. She is now based in the UK. And she really uh, helped me out in terms of shifting my perspective from the practical sort of knowledge and perspective that I had at the time to really applying it to research and academia. And she's been a really supportive force in my life, continuously pushing me and supporting me. And, you know, we all go through periods of self-doubt. And whenever I've had periods of self-doubt, she was there to sort of push me to get back on my feet and remind me that I I can do pretty much whatever I set my mind to do within, within my capabilities. And I think we're we're really lucky to have you on the board with us and uh, on the topic of being headhunted for most of the positions you've been in and, and people recognizing the talents that you have. I remember uh, when I was a volunteer last year, when we were looking for people to, to host the next webinar, and then eventually when we were thinking of who we should nominate and who we should ask to self-nominate themselves, your name definitely stood oh, out to us. thank you. <laughs> So I think you are on the right track in whatever you are doing, following your passions, making an impact. And we are just so excited to have you, you know, be a part of our alumni network and and the MIT community. And I guess to end things out, what is one thing that you miss about MIT? Honestly, the friends and the communal feel, the, mm-hmm. the communal aspect of it uh, does 
mm-hmm. you know, was we had a, a great community of friends who are supportive, who are humble, who are overachievers in a non-competitive way. And we all work mm-hmm. together. And, and I'm still, still very close friends with all of them. That and the fact that MIT had free salsa class, salsa dancing classes, free massages, <laughs> free sailing lessons, although I never did the sailing lessons or the massages. But, but the fact exactly. that they existed. <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you, Dana, and I'm so glad that we could talk about your story. Thank you so much for joining Thank us, Thank you. Dana. Thank you, Dana. That was Dana Arequat, our Director of Communications. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Unlimited. We have our episodes coming out every week, so please stay tuned, and we're looking forward to introducing the rest of the board to you. As always, none of this would be possible without our scripting team, Arin Bahur and Omar Obeya, and our editing team, Ma'mun Tuqan. So stay tuned, and we'll see you in the next episode.